Happy Sabbath, everyone. We are currently studying in the book of Acts, and today we come to the message entitled The Second Jerusalem Council, which only follows logically from last Sabbath message of the First Jerusalem Council. Um, Today we're going to literally pick up right where we left off. In Acts chapter 15, as you call, briefly reviewing, they had the First Jerusalem Council, which dealt with the issue, the concern that The question was, should Gentile converts be required to be circumcised and go through all the ceremonial purifications and ceremonial rituals of the Jewish tradition in order to become Christians, or could they go directly through Christ without becoming Jewish culturally first? That was the issue, and we know how that resolved. If you go to Acts chapter 15, again, tying us, bring us right back up to where we were last Sabbath to give us our starting point for today's message. Acts chapter 15, and we'll read down in verse 28, the letter that the council sent out to the Gentiles that they asked Paul specifically to go and be a messenger of this good news, and the good news was in Acts 15, verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from the things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality, If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. No mention of circumcision. Basically, the announcement was there was no necessity for circumcision. The Gentile believer could go directly into Christianity without having to become culturally or ceremonially Jewish first. And Paul was sent out to be the messenger of that good news. And that's where we're going to pick up our message today as we move forward to the second Jerusalem Council. But before we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for so many things, for creating us at all and certainly for sending your son Jesus to save us. And Lord, you've asked us to be your messengers and to work together in unity to do it. Lord, teach us these lessons from your word today and help the application to be brought home to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we go to uh, there at the end of Acts chapter 15. Uh, Verse 30 tells us, So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. So it ends with good news. A resolution was made. It was pleasing to the Holy Spirit. It brought the church into unity. The former prejudices of the Jewish converts were, were, were melted away, and the Holy Spirit prevailed, and Paul was sent off on his mission. Now, Let's be clear that we understand what the decision of the council was and what it wasn't. Okay? First of all, must someone now, a Gentile convert, be circumcised? No. Could they be circumcised? Sure, if they wanted to. It just simply wasn't required. So they, it wasn't required that they had to, but they could if they wanted to. So the real question is not whether they had to or not. The real question was, should they be? Should they be circumcised? And the answer to that is, well, it depends on the situation. Now think about it. Going into the first Jerusalem council, the apostle Paul had been working among the Gentiles, as the Lord had specifically called him to do, and great harvests were being seen, a great work was being done, but the Judaizers came up and said, no, 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 you must be circumcised first. There was a great contention, and they sent it back to Jerusalem, to the apostles and the elders and the leaders of the church there in Jerusalem. And only through that council did they come around to the conclusion 
I believe led by the Holy Spirit, that's what Scripture says, that the Gentile converts did not need to be circumcised. And Paul, basically Paul's side won, if you want to use those terminologies of winners and losers, but the position that Paul advocated was the one that took the day. So he leaves with the good news, literally a letter in hand to go preach this good news that the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. Now, keep this in mind. And for the moment, let's examine just a couple of extra texts outside of the book of Acts that help us understand Paul's attitude towards ministry, his philosophy for winning souls, if you will. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Just over to the right, a few pages, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I want you to take note of a couple things here. This time, the issue is not circumcision that he's dealing with in 1 Corinthians 9, but it's the question of whether Paul and the other apostles should be paid for their ministry. If they're doing spiritual ministry, should they receive physical aid? Should they have payment for what they do? In Paul's position, he bases it solely on Scripture. He does a whole uh, uh, exposition of this issue. Basically, he says, yes, we should get paid for the work that we do. In fact, read it in verse 11. Chapter 1 Corinthians 9, verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap you, your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? And if you had took the time and read 1 Corinthians 9, which I would encourage you to do, you can see his whole mindset is like this is rooted in the Old Testament. Even the, the ox doesn't get muzzled. You know, you've got to feed them. We're working. We deserve to eat, very clearly. But notice what he says now. Skip down to verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might, what's that word? Win the more. Now, he's not talking about winning arguments. He's talking about winning what? Souls, right? He says, though I have every right to demand payment, I'm going to surrender my rights for the sake of the gospel. Okay, this becomes a big issue for Paul. In fact, keep going, verse 20. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Verse 21. To those who are without law, as without law. And he has to clarify, not being without law towards God. Of course, I'm not living a lawless life against God, but I'm talking about that ceremonial law, right? to those non-believers yet, the Gentile world, not being without law toward God, but under law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Notice that Paul's philosophy of doing ministry is very practical. He's a pragmatist. As far as he can stay faithful to God and yet work with people, he's going to go as far as he can in order to save some. If he has to approach in a very Jewish manner, he'll do it. If he has to reason with the Athenians, for instance, you know, with their philosophy, he'll go there. He'll go whatever methodology will get the message across as long as it's faithful to God's word. Again, turn the page one more time. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He articulates the same philosophy when dealing with food offered to idols. Now, Paul argued very clearly that meat offered to idols, food offered to idols, is still just food. 
right? The idol is nothing, so there's no way to contaminate it. However, he understands that there are those who would see it as, a, as a, an abomination. So what do you do about that? Look at verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 23, I believe. Notice his reason of thinking. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are what? Helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Now, what does edify mean? To build up, right? To encourage, to help the church. He said, I'm free to eat anything that I want, as long as, you know, within the bounds of Scripture. However, I know that there are some issues, some obstacles that some people have, and I refuse to use my liberty if it's going to harm the presentation of the gospel. Okay? This is his thinking, and he continues to explain. I got down to verse 32. He says this, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Gentiles or to the church of God, just as I also please all men and all things. Now, you think of a people pleaser. That doesn't sound good, right? Just trying to please the people. But why was he trying to please the people? To win them to Christ, right? Notice this. He says, just as I also please all men and all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. His philosophy is very practical. I'm going to do as much as I can and remain faithful to the Lord to reach out to whatever group of people they are from. I'm going to try to win souls, no matter what. Now, let's take that philosophy and apply it back to Acts chapter 15 and 16. Again, Paul is sent out from the First Jerusalem Council, letter in hand, with the truth about the uh, the, the relation of the Gentiles to Christ, they can go directly without having to become ceremonially Jewish, particularly without having to have the rite of circumcision performed. So then we go to chapter 16 of Acts. The very first thing out of the chute, after he leaves with that letter in hand, he meets a young man by the name of Timothy. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy the son, and notice his lineage, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, so his mother was a Messianic Jew, a believer in Jesus, a Jew, but his father was Greek. Okay, so he has a divided home, if you will, a believing Jewish mother and a Greek father. But he had a good reputation, verse 2. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium, verse 3. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. So he wants to pick up Timothy and let him be his little apprentice, his helper. Paul wanted him to to go on with him, and he took him and what? Circumcised him. Now, wait a minute. Didn't Paul just fight this big, I mean, the Bible literally says no small dispute. It was a big fight. And his position had prevailed. He literally had the document in hand, signed by James and all the other elders and leaders, that this is our position of the church, that you don't have to circumcise people. And the very first thing he does, he takes Timothy and has him circumcised. Why would he do it? Doesn't he have the right to say, well, ha, I won this one. And we're not going to do, you know, we're going to start right here today. And, but notice what he does. And it says why, by the way. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Think about it. If he did not circumcise Timothy, 
then everything's going to be about his lineage and whether he was ceremonially Jewish or not, and it would be a great obstacle to spreading the gospel. So he teaches him, Timothy, lesson number one, you don't have to be circumcised. Lesson number two, we're going to do it anyway. It's like, why is that? Because we're trying to be all things to all people. Our goal is to take every obstacle out of the way and let the gospel message be clear. Okay? He's very practical in his ministry. Takes Timothy, has him circumcised, and then the irony continues in verse 4. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. He's like, now that I've circumcised you, now you can accompany me and you can carry the letter if you'd like, and we're going to go preach to all the people that you don't have to do what we just did. But in order for people to hear you with that message, we need to circumcise you. Apparently, Timothy was on board. Good guy, Timothy. So, and know what was the result of this effort? Verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. They were edified. They were built up because of Paul's approach to ministry. Now, Paul was clearly trying to win the Jews, but what's sad about this story is, of course, the, second, the first Jerusalem council takes place in Acts 15. The second Jerusalem council will take place in Acts chapter 21. But what we're going to do now is survey Acts 17, 18, 19, and 20, leading up to 21, and see how did the Jews receive Paul after the first Jerusalem council? Did they say, well, I guess everyone is met and it's okay now. Good for you. We support you 100%. Let's go to Acts chapter 17 now, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Notice the same message of Jesus, the history of the Jewish people, their rejection of Christ, yet he is the Messiah that Peter had preached in Acts chapter 2, that Stephen had preached in Acts chapter 7, and now Paul is preaching every Jewish synagogue goes. And the same message. Now, verse 4, And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So some of the Jews went on board, but a great number of Greeks came along and were converted. But, verse 5, but the Jews who were not persuaded, notice this, the unbelieving Jews who did not accept Jesus Christ, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So they were attacked verbally and at this point physically by the unbelieving Jews. We'll go down to verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, which seems to be their modus operandi. Their first stop is always the synagogue. Talk to the Jews first. Paul would say this in Romans. What, what advantage then is there being Jews? And he said, first of all, we've been entrusted with the oracles of God. Salvation is first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. He kept to that MO. But now watch what happens. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, verse 11. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, 
and that they receive the word with all readiness and search the scripture daily, daily to find out whether these things were so. So they gave Paul a more fair hearing, searched the scripture, and tested his teaching. Good for them. Verse 12, therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But, verse 13, when the Jews from Thessalonica, now they had been to Thessalonica, right? But now they're in Berea. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, where they had been, learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. So Paul has now got this contingency of unbelieving Jews that follow him around trying to upset the ministry that he's putting into place. Everywhere he goes, this is going to be a a thing that you see unfold here in these chapters and acts as Paul's missionary journey goes along. Every place he goes to preach the word, he approaches both Jews and Gentiles, but the Gentiles will, receivers, believers, outnumber the Jews. And the diehard Jews see that, boy, if he keeps preaching this message, we're going to lose Judaism. And they start stirring up the believing Jews against the message Paul is preaching. And they follow on his heels like a little toy dog. goes on. Let's go to Acts chapter 18, as we're doing a survey leading up to Acts 21. Chapter 18. Again, we'll start with verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And of course, Corinth is the place where Paul had addressed the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, right? These were these believers, where he had talked about meat offered to idols and uh, the other practical issues about payment and whatnot for ministry. Verse 2, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Notice that Paul is working for his money, though he makes the argument to the Corinthians that, hey, I shouldn't have to do that, but he's doing it anyway. Verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. I can imagine that ministry amongst this particular people group was incredibly frustrating. Everywhere he goes, people are receiving the word, but there's always that contingency of people who are out to undo what he does and tear him down, call him names, say that he's breaking the law of God, when of course he wasn't. But they were trying to besmirch and smear his character and his ministry. Paul's like, I'm done. From now I'm just going to the Gentiles. He's frustrated. Verse 7, and he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now, look, the Lord speaks directly to Paul about this issue. Now, the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. Apparently, there was perhaps a temptation for Paul to be afraid or to not preach the message so clear or so straight. He's like, no, 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 you just keep preaching your message. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. 
Apparently he was afraid of even physical attack. But the Spirit says, you just keep going, I'll take care of you. And he continued there a year and six months. So notice our time from the first Jerusalem council is kind of getting longer. We're at least a year and a half now, plus the time it took him to get here, so we might be around the two-year-ish mark out of the first Jerusalem council. Keep that in mind. Now it goes on to say, when Gallio was pro-council of Achaia, that is a Roman non-religious, this is a secular governmental ruler, the Jews with one accord, isn't it so nice when they get along, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, I'm guessing a Roman governor might be interested if he had broken Roman law, but they're saying, no, 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 the law they're talking about isn't the law of Rome. They're talking about the ceremonial law of the Jews. Hmm. And notice, Paul was about to speak up, verse 14. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. So Gallio stands up and defends Paul, basically saying, you guys don't have an issue in this court. Go home. Deal with it yourselves. It's kind of like the trial of Jesus, right? What, what law has he broken? Go deal with themselves. But they didn't want to go deal with it themselves because only the Romans could put someone to death. All we can do back home is like yell at him real loud and point our finger. What's that going to do? But Paul is continually harassed by these unbelieving Jews. Now go to chapter 19. Let me show you something interesting. At least I find it interesting. It'll help set the context of our story. Acts chapter 19, we're going to go to verse 21. But I want you to see something. And when he left Jerusalem, he went east into Asia on this missionary journey to reach the Gentiles. It's a year and a half at least, probably closer to two years now that he's been away, and he starts making his long-range travel plans. And Paul has a specific route that he wants to take in his ministry. Look at chapter 19 now, verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to where? Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Okay? So he says, you know what? When I'm done with this region, I'm going to go back to the west towards Jerusalem and then on to Rome. And we're going to see in just a moment when we look at the book of Romans, he had a plan to go beyond Rome. Now, Jerusalem was, of course, the place where the first Jerusalem council occurred. And he says, you know, it's been over, I don't know, probably two years now. I need to start heading back to Jerusalem. I'm going to give them the report. They sent me out with a letter, and I want them to let them know how things have been going. And once I've gone to Jerusalem, then I'm on to Rome. And we go to Romans, by the way, the book of Romans, chapter 15, and we see where Paul wanted to go after this. Romans chapter 15, starting with verse 23. As you're finding Romans 15, verse 23, let me give you a little background to this. 
Paul did not write the book of Romans from Rome. Nor did he write it after he had been to Rome. Paul wrote it ahead of his visit to Rome. He wrote it preparatory to that. He sent it on ahead of himself so that they would have kind of the loosen the ground a little bit and till the soil so that when he came, his ministry would be more fruitful. Okay, so he's writing this in advance of his visit. And he tells them his plans for travel. Again, Romans 15, starting verse 23. But now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to where? Spain. Now let me ask you a question. Where do we have recorded Paul's ministry to the Spaniards? We don't. Why not? Because it never happened. He never made it. Why not? Well, let's just keep, we'll leave that dangling for right now, but look at this, look at his itinerary. Again, verse 24, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, speaking to the Romans now, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you. If first I may enjoin your company for, enjoy your company for a while, but now I'm going to where? Jerusalem to minister to the saints. So this is before he returns to Jerusalem. He says, I'm headed to Jerusalem, and brothers, I'm coming to Rome, and when I get to Rome, you're going to help me go to Spain. So he wants to finish in Asia, go back to Jerusalem, report the good news of the gospel message, how the first Jerusalem Council document has been received and the Lord has blessed. Then from there he wants to go to Rome, which is why he writes the epistle to the Romans to prepare for his visit. And from Rome he wants to go to Spain. So it's an east-west movement, okay? This is his travel I planned. Now, let's go back to the book of Acts. Again, keep in mind his goal is to finish with Asia, go back to Jerusalem, head to Rome, and from Rome off to Spain. Acts chapter 20. Once again, well, we don't, have to, we don't spend too much time in Acts chapter 20, but suffice to say that once again, the Jews have an uproar against Paul. Every single chapter, 17, 18, 19, 20, all the way through, the Jews are literally on his heel. Everywhere he goes, he has this group of people that follow him around and smear his name and try to undermine his ministry by saying that he's a lawbreaker. Which brings us to Acts 21. We'll start with verse 1. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. So they're, they're crossing the sea now, and they're stopping at these different places. And they stop for seven days. And notice what these disciples tell him en route to Jerusalem, verse 4. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Notice it says here, through the Spirit, they're saying this in the Holy Spirit is leading them to speak to Paul and say, Paul, I know what your travel plans are. Don't go to Jerusalem. 
But notice verse 5. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, headed towards Jerusalem. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. So they went back to their homes. So Paul's getting on that boat. He's headed to Jerusalem. Headed to Jerusalem. Now let's go to verse 7. We're right next to us now. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now it doesn't tell us what these young ladies prophesied about, but it does say that they prophesied. But the inference, if you go to the very next verse, seems to be. Notice what else happens there. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So he acts out this little prophecy. He takes, I don't know if it was on Paul or if it was in his bag or somewhere, but he takes Paul's belt and he ties up his own hands and his feet and he says, you see how I'm bound? That's what's going to happen to you. The Jewish leaders are going to tie you down, arrest you, and take you over to Gentiles if you go to Jerusalem. Paul gets these warnings and warnings. As he gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, the warnings become more and more clear and clear. Notice the reaction, though, verse 12. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He's like, I'm not scared. The Lord has kept me out of all kinds of things. I have no fear. I'm going on. Verse 14. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Which brings us to the second Jerusalem council. Paul returns from now several years later, his missionary journey. And he goes back to the same brethren in Jerusalem who sent him out on that missionary journey. And notice the reception he receives. Verse 15. And after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain uh, nation of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we were to lodge. Verse 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us how? Gladly. Paul's like, all those warnings and forebodings, all those ominous prophecies, whatever. Look, they love me still. They're like, Paul, so good to see you. Welcome home. Verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Please note, this is the exact same group of people who had sent him on his way in Acts 15. Now they're receiving him back in Acts 21. James is still the leader, and all the other elders are there too. Verse 19, when he had greeted them, He told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He said, brothers, I have good news. 
You know that document you sent me out with, that conclusion we came to under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the Lord has blessed. And when I've gone through these different regions of the world, friends, Gentiles are coming to Christ, the church is growing, miracles are happening, praise be, he just gives a glowing report of all the things that are going on through his ministry to the Gentiles because of the previous council's decision. Now, verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. Now, so far, so good, right? They glorified that they were happy for the news about the Gentiles, but these leaders have also heard the rumors that Paul is out there tearing down the doctrines and not being a good Jew. And notice what happens next. I'm going to quote now from Acts of the Apostles, page 401, commenting on this experience of Paul. Several years had passed since the brethren in Jerusalem, with representatives from other leading churches, gave careful consideration to the perplexing questions that had arisen over methods followed by those who were laboring for the Gentiles. Again, the question wasn't over the message. Everybody was clear on the message of Jesus, right, being the Savior. The question was about the method Do you make them Jewish first with circumcision or not? That was the perplexing issue. Several years had passed since they discussed that. As a result of this council, that is the first council, the brethren had united in making definite recommendations to the churches concerning certain rites and customs, including circumcision. It was at this general council that the brethren had also united in commending to the Christian churches Barnabas and Paul as laborers worthy of the full confidence of every believer. They said, we trust these guys, we're setting them apart, they're missionaries with our seal of approval. Now, among those present at this meeting, again, still talking about the first council, were some who had severely criticized the methods of labor followed by the apostles upon whom rested the chief burden of carrying the gospel to the Gentile world. But during the council, during that first Jerusalem council, Their views of God's purpose had broadened and they had united with their brethren in making wise decisions which made possible the unification of the entire body of believers. So they went into the first meeting with hard hearts and prejudiced minds, but during the meeting the Holy Spirit intervened, melted those prejudices away, and they united the church behind a good decision. That's what the previous experience had been. But notice this now. Afterward, So after Paul goes off and they start hearing about all the work that he's doing, afterward, when it became apparent that the converts among the Gentiles were increasing rapidly, there were a few of the leading brethren at Jerusalem who began to cherish anew their former prejudices against the methods of Paul and his associates. So some of the very ones in Jerusalem who'd sent him, signed, sealed, and delivered on his way started going back and falling back into their prejudices and their old ways. And they started looking with Paul. Instead of receiving him warmly as a brother, started dealing with him distantly and skeptically and kind of, hmm, distancing themselves from him. Now notice this. These prejudices strengthened with the passing of the time, of the years, until some of the leaders determined that the work of preaching the gospel must henceforth be conducted in accordance with their own ideas. 
if Paul would conform his methods to certain policies which they advocated, they would acknowledge and sustain his work. Otherwise, they could no longer look upon it with favor or grant it their support. So they renege on the First Jerusalem Council and say, look, there's rumors going around and we just don't trust you anymore. You need to do things the way we think they need to be done or you don't have our support. So Paul comes back into that room. Brothers, good news. The gospel is going to the Gentiles. It's wonderful. And they're like, well, that's good for the Gentiles, but uh, you're kind of selling out the Jews. And Paul must have noticed, wait a minute. That spirit that had been so warm has changed over time. So we go back to Acts chapter 20. Watch this now. Acts church, I'm sorry, 21. Acts 21 Verse 20, again, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said, and they said to him, so not only did they glorify the Lord, but they proposed something else. And they said to him, you see, brother, brother Paul, we love you, Paul, but you know, brother, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. He's like, we got a lot of believing Jews here. Now, you're not coming back into some Gentile place in Asia. This is Jerusalem, brother. And we got a lot of believers here too, but they're all still very culturally Jewish. And they love that ceremonial law. Verse 21. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Now, is that what Paul had been preaching? To disregard Moses, that you shouldn't be circumcised? No. He was simply saying to the Gentiles, look, you don't have to be. Paul had no problem attending the feast. Paul had no problem circumcising Timothy. He had no problem. To the Jews, I'll be a Jew as far as I can to get the message across. But the non-believing Jews had circulated all these false reports and rumors. And have you ever noticed that as time goes by, fiction festers into fact? Perception becomes reality. And now those former associates look at him with that biased mind. And they distance themselves from them. And they say, you know, we got a lot of Jews here who love the law, and they have heard some bad things about you. So verse 22. What then? What should we do about this? The assembly must certainly meet. You know the Sanhedrin's going to call a meeting when they find out you're in town. They're going to talk to you. For they will hear that you have come. Verse 23. Therefore... Do what we tell you. It's like, don't worry, we have a plan. We have a proposal. You do, you, you, you do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. You be a living demonstration that you're still fully 
culturally, ceremonially Jewish. Now again, does Paul have any problem going to the feast, keeping a vow and circumcision? Of course not. But now he wouldn't be doing it to win friends and influence people for Jesus. It's simply to appease the prejudice of those Jews, right? And the Paul who, of his own volition, decided it was the right thing to circumcise Timothy, right, for the furtherance of the gospel, now he looks at this, he's like, wait a minute. This isn't that. But put yourself in Paul's position. He's been hassled by these unbelieving Jews. His reputation has been smeared and tarnished. And these brethren of him say, look, we've heard these rumors, and honestly, we don't like the sound of them either, but here's a way you can win them, win them all back. Just do this ceremony. You know, any time he adapted his method of labor, it was to reach his target audience with the gospel, right? But the proposal that was now offered by the leading apostles and elders was not for the furtherance of the gospel, but rather for the mere appeasement of prejudiced Jews. Their request, basically challenging Paul, if you're a real Jew then do this uniquely Jewish thing in the most prominent Jewish place while all the Jews are watching. You go be a Jew of the Jews in front of the Jews and they'll win the Jews. Right? By the way, this is strikingly similar to what Satan proposed to Jesus. If you're the Son of God, do this particularly divine thing. Now, is there anything wrong, by the way, with Jesus doing miracles? No. Is there anything wrong with him eating? Of course not. But it wasn't to win souls. That time it would just try to be winning an argument against the devil. He said, no, 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 I'm not doing it for that. I'll die out here hungry. (laughs) While there was nothing inherently wrong with observing a ceremonial vow, to do so in an attempt to placate judgmental Jews was a disgrace to the cause of Christ. If that's the only reason we're doing it, just to get out of trouble or try to win friends and influence, come on now. Page 212, the precursor, by the way, to the book Acts of the Apostles, which we're studying in our prayer meeting time, is this much smaller book, Sketches from the Life of Paul. But included in it are some interesting insights that are not included in Acts of the Apostles. Let me share a few of those with you now. Page 212, Sketches from the Life of Paul. The brethren hoped that by this act, Paul might give a decisive contradiction of the false reports concerning him. But while James assured Paul that this decision of the former council concerning the Gentile converts and the ceremonial law still held good, the advice given was not consistent with that decision, which had also been sanctioned by the Holy Spirit. By the way, if you notice in Acts 21, there's no mention of, and it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to have you do this. This is a man-made earthly thing. The Spirit of God did not prompt this advice. It was the fruit of cowardice. By the way, continuing on, the disciples themselves, notice this, the disciples themselves yet cherished a regard for the ceremonial law. 
So they had a little skin in this game. They want to see that Paul's really still a Jew themselves, right? And were too willing to make concessions, hoping by so doing to gain the confidence of their countrymen, remove the prejudice, and win the faith, win them to faith in Christ as the world's redeemer. Now, Paul's great object in visiting Jerusalem was to conciliate the church of Palestine. So long as they continued to cherish prejudice against him, they were constantly working to counteract his influence. He felt, this is Paul now, that if he could by any lawful concession on his part win them to the truth, he would remove a very great obstacle to the success of the gospel in other places. So Paul starts rationalizing, well, I am a pragmatist. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. Maybe it'll help. And he starts justifying this compromise. Watch this now. But he was not authorized of God to concede so much as they had asked. This concession was not in harmony with his teachings, nor with the firm integrity of his character. We go back to Acts chapter 21. What happened? Again, verse 24, take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But notice what they say in verse 25. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from the things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. He's like, we, by the way, we still stand by our first Jerusalem council decision for the Gentiles. But for the Jews, they still need, see the distinction? Verse 26. Then Paul told them, no, I'm headed to Rome. <laughs> if only that were the case. Verse 26. Then Paul took them in. And the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, notice this, the Jews from where? Asia, the same place he'd been going, who had been on his heels the whole time. Of course, they're Jews, and they come back to these festivals, these feasts, right? So they're in Jerusalem too. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Did he win any influence with the Jews? Not an ounce. They laid hands on him. Verse 30, and all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. The rest of Paul's life almost exclusively was spent in captivity. He did eventually go to Rome, by the way, bound in chains as a prisoner. And he had to stand before those great men and those governors, those rulers, those leaders, 
and make a defense of the faith, which he did beautifully, marvelously, well represented the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it was to no avail, and in the city of Rome, Paul met his end, a martyr's death. But you remember, where was he headed? Spain. The Holy Spirit had told him, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. But he was thinking, no, 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 I'm, you don't understand. They're going to love, they're going to hear the good news, they're going to be so happy. The Holy Spirit's like, don't go to Jerusalem. Whatever you do, don't go to Jerusalem. No, surely they're going to. Now, we shouldn't be terribly surprised that Paul suffered a martyr's death. All the apostles did that, suffered for the Lord that way. The first one was, obviously, you remember Stephen was stoned for the cause of Christ, closing that Daniel 9 prophecy, the 40, uh, 490 years. James, an, a different James than the one we're talking about here, was beheaded, and immediately Peter had been imprisoned by the same man, right? Same Herod. And I would have, didn't John, by the way, in the Gospel of John, didn't Jesus specifically tell Peter he would die a martyr's death? Yes. Said, when you're older, they're going to take you where you don't want to go and stretch out your arms. And he was talking about his death. And I can imagine after James was beheaded, Peter's arrested by the same man and put in the same prison. He's thinking, well, okay. <laughs> I guess this is prophecy coming true. But Peter didn't die that night in the jail cell. Why not? The Lord intervened in a mighty way, and an angel set him free. Question for you. Why did the Lord free Peter? The church was praying vigilantly for him. You can read it in the book of Acts. They had a constant... Remember, they loved Peter. He was one of them, right? But Paul, mm, not so much. These same believers, by the way, who had tried to talk him into this compromise when he was arrested and taken away, apparently also failed to go home and hold that prayer vigil for their friend and brother, Paul. I want to read you something. It was, I, I find one of the most, um, one of the more powerful passages I've read in the spirit of prophecy. It's from the Sketches from the Life of Paul, page 231. And listen carefully to this paragraph. The Savior's words of reproof to the men of Nazareth apply in the case of Paul, not only to the unbelieving Jews, but to his own brethren in the faith. Now, what were Jesus' words of reproof to the men of Nazareth? You remember in Luke chapter 4, Jesus returns back after his dealings with the devil and he goes to Nazareth, his hometown, right, where he grew up. No honor. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, this is Matthew, Luke 4, 24, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three and a half years. Three, and six, three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent to, except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha. 
and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Jesus stands up in Nazareth and says, of course you reject me. It's always been that way. Elijah faced it, Elisha faced it, and I'm not surprised I face it now. My own brethren don't accept me. The Savior's words of reproof to the men of Nazareth apply in the case of Paul. Not only to the unbelieving Jews, but to his own brethren in the faith. Had the leaders in the church, now listen carefully to the import of these words, had the leaders in the church fully surrendered their feelings of bitterness toward the apostle and accepted him as one specially called of God to bear the gospel to the Gentiles, the Lord would have spared him to to them to still labor for the salvation of souls. Next sentence. He who sees the end from the beginning and who understands the hearts of all saw what would be the result of the envy and jealousy cherished towards Paul. God had not in his providence ordained that Paul's labor should so soon end. It was not God's plan that Paul's labor should so soon end. I believe not only did Paul want to go to Spain, God wanted Paul to go to Spain. He had work for him to do. But he did not work a miracle to counteract the train of circumstances to which their own course gave rise. They were determined to do their thing, and the Lord respected them. Okay, that's your decision. You know, imagination is all you have left. I mean, what if Paul had gone to Rome free? What if he was able to get the support they needed from Rome and then head on to Spain? Are there books of the Bible we could still have that we don't have at all now that could have been written? First and second Spaniards? <laughs> I don't know. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible is in any way deficient. Don't get me wrong. God gives us exactly what we need. But Paul would, had, a, had a plan for himself, and the Lord had a plan to use Paul some more. But the brethren weren't with him. And so the Lord said, okay, Paul. In conclusion, the same spirit is still leading to the same results. A neglect to appreciate and improve the provisions of divine grace has deprived the church of many a blessing. How often would the Lord have prolonged the life of some faithful minister had his labors been appreciated? But if the church permit the enemy of souls to pervert their understanding so that they misrepresent and misinterpret the words and acts of the servant of Christ, if they allow themselves to stand in his way and hinder his usefulness, the Lord removes from them the blessing which he gave. Is it possible that the Lord wants to do more through us than he's currently doing, yet our lack of a prayerful attitude and a united spirit hinders the work of the gospel? Is it possible that there's some great work the Lord wants to do right here in Muskegon, and instead of working out how can we go reach the people, we're busy quarreling amongst ourselves in some times, in some cases? Is it possible, and I'm not just talking about Muskegon, but the, the work as a whole, that when we see something that might be disturbing, the first thing we want to do is criticize and censure and, and harp on it instead of taking our time and praying for them, counseling with them, working with them, taking the time. 
People had heard wrong things about Paul, but they wanted to believe those things instead of talking to Paul. Friends, I believe we should do a lot more praying for each other than we do talking about each other. I think the Lord wants to do marvelous, beautiful, big things right here. I think there are souls to be won in this part of Michigan, right here in this territory, that we could be winning if we more fully surrendered to Christ and his leading personally and devoted ourselves to the work that he wants to do through us corporately. I think there's a work he wants to do. This is why I believe the Bible talks about hastening the coming of the Lord. He wants us to be a part of that work. He wants us to be knit together in the bonds of Christian unity. That yes, there might be trials and difficulties, but we're going to pray for each other and study together and grow together and let humility run its course and let the character of Christ be seen in every one of us. The closing hymn we're going to sing today is number 537. It's Have Thine Own Way, Lord. And I hope that this is the prayer of our hearts as we reflect on the early church. As we reflect on the early church's strengths and weaknesses. Now, I'm sure that if we talk about, what do you think about the book of Acts at the very beginning? Oh, it's great. Everything was great. 3,000 baptized. Oh, they were all united in one accord. Friends, they were people just as we are people. And the God wants, the same God of that church wants to do something through this church. Let us learn their lessons and have the character of Christ so that he can have his own way in us. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.